Um, and today we finally, finally uh, got him, uh, got a decision from the New York City Police Commissioner, which to tell you the truth, um, watching, I guess in a way, it, it's good because there would have been mass, mass outrage, mass, mass outrage uh, if he wasn't fired. But watching, watching the clip of the police commissioner uh, announcing the firing of um, Daniel Pantaleo, the um, officer who choked Eric Garner to death live on, on video, uh, to me was very um, beyond bittersweet, bitter. And I'll tell you why. I think the police commissioner, if you saw the clip where he um, really just went out of his way to make it seem like Daniel Pantaleo was this great officer with, you know, many, many years of great service. And the police commissioner was saying, I might have done the same thing if I were him. And the police commissioner was also giving this talk um, of the, the, this talk of, well, Eric Garner was, you know, shouldn't have been resisting arrest and all these things. He fired him. Um, he really deferred to the police judge. You know, the police department has judges and things like that. He fired him and really went out of his way to basically say, say we're firing him because he broke uh, police protocol, used an illegal chokehold, all of this. But to me, he went out of his way to make it seem like, in a way, could have happened to any police officer. In a way, there's gray area here, and it might have been justifiable. And if I was a cop on the street that day, I don't know what I would have done. So I think the police commissioner tried to have it both ways, where, with a gun, figuratively, with a gun to his head, um, and the the eyes of the nation on him, make it seem like Eric Garner shouldn't have resisted arrest, and you know, initially the officer was in the right uh, for the initial altercation. And to me, uh, I'm not a black guy, obviously, but to me, as a white dude watching, I think fundamentally um, why the police commissioner is wrong in some of the things he said today is this. We have in America, and the media plays a huge, huge role in this. First of all, the media plays a huge part in this fetishizing and this, this pedestal we put police on, okay? Just because a police officer comes up to you and says, uh, you know, you're under arrest or this and that, doesn't mean you have to immediately, doesn't mean you have to immediately drop your, you know, put your hands up and say, yes, sir, or, you know, if it's a female officer. You're allowed to ask, what is it that I am being arrested for? They are not kings, he or she, police officer. And Eric Garner was standing uh, on the side of a, uh, in the front of a, a store. And what the police com commissioner didn't mention is that the police had an issue with Eric Garner uh, unrelated to him standing in front of that store. And that they didn't like that, uh, you know, there were some calls being made uh, around that neighborhood about crime totally unrelated to Eric Garner. So when not one police officer, not two police officers, not three, not four, there were five or six officers that approached Eric Garner. Is a man, especially a black man in America, not allowed to ask for what is it that you're arresting me for? 
obviously he threw up his hands and, and, and said, come on, man. You know, I'm paraphrasing. You watch the video. He wasn't resisting arrest in terms of running. He wasn't arresting, uh, ar you know, he wasn't uh, fiercely or aggressively resisting arrest. And I think, you know, the media likes, uh, and frankly, a lot of older people like to push this mentality of do whatever the police say, no matter what. And I'm not saying disobey the police if you get pulled over and, you know, drive away. I'm not, I'm not saying, you know, be confrontational with the police uh, if they're, you know, if it's a civil, if they are being civil. But if, you know, uh, 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 basically a unofficial army of five or six cops come up to you while you're standing there minding your own business, I don't think Eric Garner did anything wrong by A, asking, what, what is your problem? What are you arresting me for? He, he, if, if you saw the video, he said, you know, you guys won't stop harassing me. But this is the mentality of occupying forces. It's, we are the power, we have the badge, we have the gun, and you will do what we say. And the police commissioner made a comment that, you know, society gives police a... Uh, uh, the judgment or the authority to use a reasonable, um, what was his terms? A reasonable amount of force. That was his terms. No, you, police don't have an unlimited use of force in America. And let's be clear, when he says, oh, the New York Police Department, the New York City Police Department did not, um, did not rule on this for five years, did not choose to fire him or do anything for five years because they were told to let the civil rights or the federal uh, process play out if there were going to be federal charges. That's not true. The, the New York City Police Department could have acted as early as, the next, as that day or the next day. It had no bearing on whether federal charges were brought against Daniel Pantaleo. So, although, although it's a positive thing that he was fired, this does not mean, you know, let's, let's, let's have a party and, you know, police are really going to think twice now if they, you know, want to harass a black man on the side of the street or how to bring him down. Really, the reason that even the bare minimum of justice came, and this is the bare minimum of justice, Anyone with eyes should see this man, this cop, who, by the way, is losing his pension, should be in jail because the New York City Police Commissioner said today he, the use of that chokehold was against police protocol, a.k.a., I don't know if it's against the law, but against the police training and protocol. So if what he was doing was against police training and protocol, then it goes to intent. Was there an intent to harm Eric Garner? Well, if you are trained not to use chokeholds and the man is scre screaming 11 times, I cannot breathe and you do not release, to me, a reasonable standard is you are intending to bring this man down by any means necessary. And you're, and that is reckless homicide because you are not concerned with whether you are harming or possibly killing someone. It's that simple. It's that simple. Uh, 
Eric Garner's daughter, his family spoke. Uh, I, you know, I think they are satisfied. I wouldn't say happy, satisfied that this police police officer has been fired. But it's not going to bring back their father, their grandfather, the son of his mother. And it really is pretty scandalous that it took over five years for this to happen. To remind you of how the family has been impacted here, here's just a short clip uh, when I covered a protest a couple weeks ago. Here's Eric Garner's cousin uh, before, obviously, Pantaleo was fired. This is on the eve of the five-year anniversary of Garner's death. I'm confused as why it's taking so long for an investigation. Five years to investigate something that's caught on video, something that had 22 eyewitnesses, something that even had two Emmy reports that ruled it a homicide. He heard him saying, I can't breathe until he couldn't say it no more. How, How is it that across this nation, and state after state, unarmed black men, women, and children are being gunned down with no repercussions, and it's coming from law enforcement. Law enforcement. It, it, if, if they are in charge of our safety, then who are they keeping safe? Only white people? Because every black person is getting murdered, there's no repercussions. Yep. Nobody is checking their hand. What are they, what are they the terrorists of America? They're certainly acting like it. If I get into an altercation in the street, I'm afraid to call the cops because I will have two enemies at my side. Who am I going to turn to when I need help? I can't call the police. The police is murdering us. I'm afraid for my sons and daughters and the rest of my family. My cousins, they, everybody. My aunts, my mother. My mother's 80 years old. I make sure that I go out with her when she go down places because they're killing old women too, if they're black. That was Eric Garner's cousin, and this is Eric Garner's youngest daughter, who was only was alive for three months, only was alive for three months before this happened, and her father, who she'll never know, uh, was killed. All right. What do we want it? We want justice now. Now. We want justice now. We want justice now. We want justice now. It's stuck. So it's really tragic. I mean, there's no other way to put it. There's no winners here. And frankly, this cop is lucky he's only facing. This cop is lucky he's only facing losing his pension. There might be another police department somewhere in a small, bumble, whatever city that hires him back. But Eric Garner's family will not get him back. And make no mistake, the firing of Daniel Daniel Pantaleo does not magically, you know, put a chill over police in this country when it comes to black men. When systemic racism when systemic racism is so ingrained in society and the police force. The only thing that will change it is leadership. And I don't think we have that yet in America. And I'm saying that as a white girl, white guy, but I've covered a lot 
of police brutality protests, and I think I'll unfortunately still have to cover a lot of police brutality protests. But at the very least, it is a step in the right direction that this police officer was fired, even over five years too late. I'd like to get to Elizabeth Warren. Elizabeth Warren. And Bernie Sanders' campaign has gone out of their way to not speak ill of uh, Senator Warren, um, which I think is a good strategy. There's no reason at this point for Bernie's campaign to be going at Warren's campaign or vice versa. It's fine to play nice. I think in future debates, he's going to have to point out their there's some differences here, but I don't think that time has come. I think Bernie should be continuing to go after Biden as well as Kamala Harris, which uh, Bernie, you will see, went after Kamala Harris today, actually. But Elizabeth Warren, to me, to me, one of the things that I've always had an issue with, Elizabeth Warren could come up with 25,000 plans if she likes, and that's great, that you got a plan for everything and yada, yada, yada. That's great. But with plans... Do you have the courage of your convictions? Are you a trustworthy, progressive leader? Are you someone that the people voting don't have to wonder if these plans you're putting out during the campaign, are you gonna actually follow through? Are you gonna fight to the deaths for these plans? Or is this all kind of like a branding critique? Because it's not hard, by the way, for a candidate to get a bunch of really educated, wonky people around, a lot of wonks, who want to write plans and live in Theoryville and live in Plan Planville. Go to Vox.com if you want to read a bunch of wonks. But plans are only as good as the leader proposing them. Is that leader he or she consistent? Is that leader he or she courageous? Is that leader he or she trustworthy? And to me, to me, the mark of a a great political leader is a leader that stands up and is courageous, loud, and uh, goes against nefarious forces when very few others are. So, you know, to me, not only as a journalist, but as a person, one story that informed me very heavily was uh, the battle at Standing Rock in 2016, when you know, I'm a, I'm a white Jew from Long Island. I've, I very, very limited exposure to Native Americans when I was young. Uh, I don't recall having any Native American classmates in elementary, middle school, or high school. I don't think there was many Native Americans in my town. Um, I re- you know, I, I knew the history that I was taught at school, but not the full scope of the oppression, both past and present. So when you go to Standing Rock, whether it's as a journalist, whether it's as an activist, whether it's as a Native American, it really opens up your eyes to the not not just the not just the systemic um, inequities and the systemic um, baked in second class, third class, fourth class citizenship that Native Americans have been given by the people that stole their land raped their women, and killed their ancestors. But the uh, just a bit, the pure racism and hatred that has been allowed towards Native Americans. So that's why I think during the Standing Rock movement, particularly when you saw, you want to talk about the, uh, the police brutality against Eric Garner, 
You look at the police terrorism. The police terrorism against the Native Americans, the environmental activists at Standing Rock. That was the, the plain old, right in front of you, definition of fascism right in front of your eyes. When the publicly funded police department is literally creating a blockade, a blockade in the road to protect a private oil company's pipeline, that would be the merging of the corporate state with the private state. That's fascism. But Elizabeth Warren, I mean, I'll just show you some of it. She apologized today uh, for, you know, her whole Native American ancestry thing. Here's some of what she had to say. Senator Warren again apologized for mischaracterizing her identity while speaking to indigenous groups there in Sioux City, Iowa. I want to say this. Like anyone who's being honest with themselves, I know that I have made mistakes. I am sorry for harm I have caused. I have listened and I have learned a lot. And I am grateful for the many conversations that we've had together. It is a great honor to be able to partner with Indian Country. And that's what I've tried to do as a senator. And that's what I promise I will do as President of the United States of America. I don't, I don't particularly know what Elizabeth Warren has done as far as being a partner with Indian Country uh, as a senator. Maybe she's done some symbolic things. I don't know much she's done as far as legislation. But I don't think, I mean, I don't honestly tell you the truth. Some of you might not like this. I don't really care about her Native American ancestry thing. It's not uh, on the, uh, uh, in the totality of things that could be said about Elizabeth Warren. The Native thing to me is stupid. If she put it on her degrees or whatever, like I don't think she should have. But to me, that's not the disqualifier uh, as far as Elizabeth Warren. Um, to me, she should be apologizing for not standing up for Standing Rock. Because that, make no mistake about it, was to me, and I'm not Native American, but I've spoken with a lot of Native Americans, that's the time that Indian country needed political support and political courage. And Tulsi Gabbard showed that political courage by going to Standing Rock. And by the way, Tulsi Gabbard just went back to Standing Rock a couple weeks ago uh, for the, uh, uh, you know, launch of their solar farm. So Tulsi Gabbard went there. Bernie Sanders did not go there, but he spoke out several times, including right, right outside Congress, about Standing Rock and standing up for Standing Rock. Elizabeth Warren did not. And I would venture to guess that, you know, when was this? September, October, November, uh, September, October? of 2016, Elizabeth Warren was already starting those engines towards 2020. Sure, didn't know at that point if Hillary Clinton was going to be president, but Hillary, uh, Elizabeth Warren knew at that point, you know, this thing with the Native American ancestry was uh, a big issue. And when she's, t when she's thinking about next, next political move, possibly running for president in four years or eight years, I don't think she wanted to reignite the issue as far as let me go stand up uh, for the people in Standing Rock and then have Republicans, Trump calling her Pocahontas and all this uh, going out against her and reminding people that she might have, whatever, exaggerated her Native American ancestry, which again to me is the least of the issues with Elizabeth Warren.
So the first time, and, and I've looked this up many, many times, first time that I could find Elizabeth Warren said anything about Standing Rock was on December 4th, which for those of you who remember Standing Rock, that was the day that Pre uh, President Obama at the time denied that final permit. I don't know how anyone could watch the news and not be horrified by what's happening at Standing Rock Reservation in North Dakota. For months, Standing Rock Sioux and thousands of others have opposed a pipeline that many believe risks contaminating the tribe's water supply. I don't really need the rest. The real point here is the date. So yeah, she's right, for months. For months at that point, Native Americans, not to mention their white environmental activist allies that, that came, were getting grenades shot at them, tear gas, pepper spray, rubber bullets, freezing water tanks. That was starting in September. You know, you remember the dogs that you saw, thanks to Amy Goodman's reporting? Dogs biting protesters? Elizabeth Warren was silent. So, again, I'm not speaking for Native Americans, um, but, you know, day late, many dollars short, in my view, which finds, me, finds it a little hard to really take seriously what are her intentions right now as far as her plan plans for Native Americans. Again, nothing wrong with a candidate with a lot of plans. I've read some of her plans. They're good plans. But you have to not just look at what people are writing now. Hillary Clinton, she proposed a lot of, quote, progressive plans. Problem is, anyone with an objective brain who knows a little bit about politics knew Hillary Clinton is not going to stick with most of these plans when she gets elected. She's just throwing out meat to whatever constituency she needs to get elected. And that's, to me, what it looks like Elizabeth Warren is doing right now. Because she knows, if she were to become the nominee, that Donald Trump is going to keep hitting her as Pocahontas, as Pocahontas, as Pocahontas. And to combat that, she doesn't want to have to just combat it herself. What she is saying is she's going to want Native Americans to defend her. And that's why she's making this olive branch too. Indian country. Wesley Wiles said, and I just got this message. Apparently, he, I'm wrong, he says. Uh, Wesley Wiles, I'm a Native American. What you were saying is bullshit. Thank you. She co-opted Native American, Native identity to further a lawyer career. It's common practice to claim minorities when getting into prestigious school. Wesley, I obviously give you deference if you're a Native American. My point wasn't to say what she did was not wrong. My point is to say, to me, this isn't the major disqualifier with Elizabeth Warren. I'm not going to take the Republican talking point that this is why you shouldn't vote for Elizabeth Warren, in my opinion. I don't think it's a good thing that she did that. And I'm not going to pretend to know what the norm is. I'm sure people do that about Native American ancestry or other type of ancestry to advance or get into certain schools, whatever. It's not a good thing. I don't want you to take it the wrong way. I guess what I was saying is on the grand scheme, of, like for example, with Hillary Clinton, I didn't cover the email thing that much because to me, that's so far down the list of issues with Hillary Clinton to be covered. There's plenty of more substantive things that could have been uh, critiqued about Hillary Clinton. Last thing I'll say about Warren, honestly, and I don't mean to be a jerk, but it's true. 
I don't really give a damn what your plan is for Indian country because I don't really trust that if elected, that's going to be a priority to you. I don't think so. I think this is a very obvious, craven attempt to neutralize or totally get rid of one of her biggest political liabilities. And obviously what Trump is saying is racist, calling her Pocahontas and these things. I mean, I'm not, there's no validity in the things Trump is saying, but, you know, part of the issue, uh, not part, one of the major issues with Hillary Clinton, people didn't trust her. People didn't trust her. And Elizabeth Warren is trying to atone for however you want to slice it, being dishonest on applications, you know, exaggerating or just straight up lying about her, her heritage. And I think, uh, thank you, Mike. I'm going to borrow from you. She's pandering right now to Native Americans. And the Native Americans I spoke with, hundreds and hundreds on the ground for months and months. They're not stupid. They know when someone's uh, feeding them a bunch of BS, because like African Americans, that's all they've been fed. A bunch of empty promises, pandering, and bullshit from the government. So I don't know, you know, the media is put, the media, I mean, I see a headline right next to me, Warren apologizes to Native Americans. I think Warren should be apologizing for being a no-show when Native Americans were under siege. Because make no mistake about it, when there's no political courage between Tulsi Gabbard, Bernie Sanders, Jill Stein, Raul Grijalva, I think Keith Ellison at the time, there was very few, I mean, Heidi Heidkamp, she was a North Dakota senator. She was speaking, you know, oh, those poor oil workers from DAPL. She wasn't speaking out for Native Americans. I mean, not the North Dakota politicians weren't speaking out for North uh, uh, Native Americans because they're in bed and bought off by the oil companies. You know, we talk about liabilities. We talk about liabilities in a general election. If Warren was to become the general uh, election nominee, which I don't see happening based on her demographics, she's not doing so hot. People making under $50,000 a year, not doing so hot among African Americans. Uh, she does well among those with advanced degrees, not as well with those with just high school degrees. By the way, those with just high school degrees are the majority of Americans. Majority of Americans don't have a college degree. Um, but I still think this Native American thing, right or wrong, is a, a, a liability for her because if you look at one of the major reasons Hillary Clinton lost, people did not trust her. And I met so many Donald Trump supporters in 2016 that were not really, you know, big Trump supporters as much as could not bring themselves to vote for Hillary Clinton. They thought she was dishonest. They thought she was corrupt. I'm not saying Warren is to that level, but this is a liability. And frankly, as somebody who was on the ground freezing my behind off and seeing the atrocities around me at Standing Rock, the reason I think it's so important to call Elizabeth Warren out is frankly, there could be another Standing Rock. I mean, Keystone XL Pipeline, if you've looked into it, the police in Nebraska, Montana, South Dakota, they have been arming up for potential protests for the Keystone XL Pipeline. There have been laws attempted to be passed since Standing Rock to uh, make it a felony to protest, quote, critical infrastructure, a.k.a. pipelines. It has been, they are trying to basically criminalize protest. 
and they are trying to release, um, pull back restraint on police, where you might unfortunately and frighteningly start seeing real bullets thrown around because they're making it seem like protest, even banging on drums or, or, or you know, holding your hands to each other to um, block construction is equivalent to terrorism, as they say, eco-terrorism. So that's what I think about Elizabeth Warren and her apologies to native country. I think she was apologizing for the wrong thing. Not breaking any news here. Uh, Joe Biden, I've shown you the truth. These are not gaffes he's making. This is somebody who's having a cognitive decline. I'm not going to play doctor, as I've told you. I don't know what is wrong with him. Could just be old age. He's tired. But this is, these are not gaffes. This is somebody aging with a cognitive issue. And apparently, this is, to me, this story is going to blow your mind. Because to me, if, if it's even possible, I think Joe Biden is worse way worse than even Hillary Clinton was in 2016 as far as bringing people out. Because to me, even though the media says there's not, these things don't matter. There's three important signs to look at when you want to look at enthusiasm in a candidate. Number one, look at the community. You see a lot of lawn signs for candidates. You see a lot of street signs for candidates. You see a lot of signs on buildings. I mean, I remember going around Ohio, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. I saw a lot of Trump stuff everywhere. So very little Hillary Clinton stuff. The media said, oh, that's not a big deal. They're, they're just not putting the signs out there. Okay. Uh, rally size. The media also said in 2016, a lot of the pundits said, oh, Bernie might be getting rally sizes or Trump might be getting rally sizes. You know, that doesn't matter. Older people vote and, and don't go to rallies. Well... Hillary Clinton could barely sell out college gymnasiums. Uh, gymnasiums. 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 Thirdly, fundraising. Are you getting a large number of grassroots support? Well, Joe Biden is not selling out, frankly, local union halls, we've shown you. They have to actually put people working from the unions people working from the unions in the seats to fill out the crowds. The, I mean, I, I haven't been on the road, been out on the road enough to even comment on lawn signs and stuff like that. But in this surprisingly good piece from Politico, they took a break from uh, their political jihad against Bernie Sanders. Joe Biden raised $4.6 million online on his first day in the 2020 presidential race. Surprising doubters who thought the former vice president couldn't run a modern campaign. But since then, Biden's online fundraising has tumbled, looking more like a flash-in-the-pan opponent, Better O'Rourke, than top-tier rivals like Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren. More than 60% of the $13.2 billion Biden raised online came in the first week of his campaign, which launched in late April. I remember it launched on the five-year anniversary of the Flint water crisis. Shows Joe Biden's thinking to launch his campaign on that anniversary, but I digress. So more than 60% of his $13.2 billion raised online came in the first week of his campaign. So since then, I mean, that's, a, that's falling off a cliff. 
while other ca- top candidates spiked early and then gradually raised more money online as the 2020 campaign is carried on, Biden's pattern is similar to O'Rourke, who roared into the race with millions raised in his first day, but has trickled off since then, watching his standing in the polls erode as the people who flocked to his 2018 Texas Senate campaign stopped mashing the donate button with every email. Online, unlike O'Rourke, Biden has enjoyed a steady stream of high-dollar in-person events with big donors to bolster his finances, putting him among the top Democratic fundraisers in 2020. But the online totals are a sign that Biden has not built enthusiastic grassroots support for his presidential campaign, despite his leads leading the polls. Politico's review of presidential fundraising via Act Blue also shows that the former vice president didn't generate other types of spikes or breakout moments that other campaigns feasted on during the first half of this year. That includes well-received debate performances, televised town hall appearances, or even announcing support for impeaching President Donald Trump, all of which drove fundraising for other Democratic campaigns early this year. Asked about the trends, a Biden campaign ad said there are other indicators that the campaign is building a strong online effort. For example, two-thirds of Biden's online donors joined his email list since his campaign launch, according to the aid, demonstrating growth. Our campaign has grown beyond expectations, and we fully expect the growth to continue as we focus on building a strong and stable grassroots fundraising operation. So, boy, let me, let me, let me be clear, okay? Joe Biden is doing, uh, at this rate, I mean, we could look through our emails, probably two or three high-dollar fundraisers a week. He's doing more high-dollar fundraising than actual rallies and campaign events. So it could be for many reasons. Does he just, would he rather just hang out with rich people, wearing his aviators in Cape Cod, in um, the Hamptons? And we're going to get to Kamala Harris in the Hamptons, by the way. Uh, He'd probably rather hang out with those people. Or does his campaign know this is the only way they could fund not only a full primary, but then a general election because he's not he doesn't have what Bernie Sanders has or to a lesser degree, Elizabeth Warren have. Bernie Sanders is honestly, I, I wish we had the mojo Bernie Sanders does at status quo. Bernie Sanders is creating a recurring subscription based fundraising army. He has people signing up for uh, in some cases, weekly, in most cases, monthly donations. Small dollar. His average donation has dipped down to $16 per donor, which if you get his campaign emails, uh, they've asked for either more individuals to donate or for people to give a little bit more, I I think from like $2.70 to $5. Joe Biden's campaign knows there isn't like, uh, you know, people chomping at the bit, chomping at the bit on the ground to give money to Joe Biden because they're kind of like, eh, Biden, you know, can I, can I have the, can I have the Hershey's Sunday instead of the broccoli, mom? But the difference is broccoli's good for you. Biden's not. It's remarkable. 60% of online donations, meaning 60% of his grassroots donations came in the first week, which shows you a lot of the money that could be going to Joe Biden in terms of the grassroots are going to 
Warren or Bernie or other candidates. So if you can't fill out a union hall, if for foreign policy speeches and domestic speeches, the campaign is clearly, clearly choosing smaller venues because they know he can't fill out a larger venue. If the campaign, we saw a story last week that the campaign is being advised to, quote, scale back his campaigning with unnamed Democratic Party people saying he, he looks to struggle more at, at evening events. And now you're seeing basically his grassroots fundraising from small dollar people falling off a cliff. And by the way, by the way, when you juxtapose this, say what you want about Donald Trump and the Republican Party. They are creating a, a, a financial tsunami. Donald Trump has fundraised and he started his fundraising for 2020 pretty much as soon as he was inaugurated. I think the RNC or Trump in the last quarter raised over $100 million. Now, money doesn't buy you victory. Hillary Clinton outraised Donald Trump two to one. Trump is president. So it doesn't just mean because Trump has more money, um, he'll win. But if he's running against, uh, you know, somebody that they have to drag, you know, it's like that mile run. You ever, you ever run the mile in high school? I remember, love him to death, this guy I went to high school with. You know, had some asthma, probably overweight. You know, people had to help him finish. He was really struggling. So people went and, you know, see if he was okay and kind of drag him to the finish line. This is what we're talking about with the last vice president of the United States. Not, I mean, I don't need to go through all the stumbles, you know, not remembering which cities just had massacres, saying the kids from Parkland visited him while he was vice president, even though the shooting happened two years later. You know, equating all poor people, all poor kids with black kids. The list goes on, and it's going to keep happening, and this is why he's in the political witness protection program, and his campaign only puts him out every other Tuesday. But this man is not just past his expiration date as far as energy. He's past his expiration date as, as, as far as the times... If you read, you know, we get reports from his fundraisers. He keeps talking to these um, do high dollar donors about like, oh, you know, the fever will break when I become president. You know, these Republicans, they're good men and women. And, you know, they are, they just, they want to work with Democrats, but they're afraid of Trump. No, they're not. They were extreme before Trump. They've been pushing tax cuts for their donors, pushing deregulation pushing environmental deregulation. They love, they don't give a damn when black men are massacred. They don't give a damn about women having a choice in what they do with their bodies. And they certainly don't care about income inequality. And to them, prosperity and humanity is how much money can rich people get. These are not people you could work with. These are not, um, you know, this bygone you know, bygone error of Democrats working with Republicans. And I don't really know what error Joe Biden is even talking about where Democrats and Republicans work together to get good things passed. Democrats and Republicans worked together during the, the 90s. Huh? The crime bill. Yeah, maybe he's talking about the crime bill, which, yeah, bipartisan compromise basically caged black people for generations and generations. They're still in there. And now he says, oh, an afterthought. 
on second thought, maybe we went too hard. So, I don't know. I mean, the more you look at this, and the, and the crazy thing to me is, the crazy thing to me is, for all these people that go on CNN and MSNBC and write in the New York Times and the Washington Post and all of this, that have the audacity that, uh, in one breath, they, they, they scream, Trump is unprecedented. Trump needs to be defeated. They're just basically being silent to prop up somebody who's clearly, clearly not the best candidate to run against him. Clearly a liability to run against him. So, you know, when's it going to be? If, if, if all the grassroots support is gone, that means he has to continue doing high-dollar fundraisers every single week. Some stretches, that's all he's going to be doing, which is the exact opposite contrast you want with President Trump. You, you can't paint President Trump as the most corrupt president of all time when you're basically lying at the altar of these brave patriots from Goldman Sachs, these brave patriots from pharmaceutical companies, these brave patriots from Comcast who are union busters and own MSNBC and NBC, and these brave patriots from Silicon Valley, big real estate, and all the other usual suspects. No thanks. Donald Trump was able to win by painting him as an everyman, and the Democratic Party's geniuses think that all of a sudden, this anti-establishment fervor, eh, people aren't going to pay attention. So, not only did Kamala Harris, six months, six months after uh, she became a senator in California, go to the Hamptons in 2017 to hobnob with Hillary Clinton's donors, she's back at it again. This, from the Sunrise Movement, uh, the you know, the climate change group that has been very, very active. Yikes, Kamala Harris is skipping out on the first ever presidential climate forum to schmooze with big donors. Debating our generation survival isn't optional. We need a leader who prioritizes the future of humanity over rubbing elbows with millionaires and billionaires. This is uh, in response to uh, a news story that Kamala Harris will be uh, doing big, big fundraisers uh, in downtown LA and Hancock Park while a CNN climate change town hall event is going on, which eight other candidates have agreed to attend. But Kamala Harris will not be attending so that she could be raising money. But not to be outdone by that, Kamala Harris was in the Hamptons this weekend preaching about capitalism to some of the finest, finest brave Americans. Patriots, I'd call them. This from Bloomberg. Teslas and Maseratis lined the street as Kamala Harris greeted guests slipping drink, sipping drinks from plastic cups with her name on them and eating cinnamon sugar donuts from Dreesen's as a, at a fundraiser hosted by the movie exec, executive Jamie Patrickoff and his wife, Kelly as the summer of Democratic fundraisers rolled on in East Hampton. The senator and former California prosecutor assured donors, I believe in capitalism. During a jam-packed weekend of pitching her plan to save the middle class, 
Oh my god, save the middle class. Harris is looking to raise enough money to keep her campaign fueled through the next debates in September and beyond. She also had events on Martha's Vineyard. That working class hub, Martha's Vineyard, where all of those working class Kennedys, Clintons, Lettermans, Obamas, all these working class people, that's where they hang out. Martha's Vineyard. Tickets range from 100 to 2,800. So, Kamala Harris, ironically, told these folks in the Hamptons that she is no longer uh, for Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All plan. Um, she said she was becoming more and more um, hesitant with it um, or uncomfortable with it. So here's David Sirota. Um, oh, because Kamala Harris's person, her c- spokesperson said she has her own health care plan. So yeah, not a, not a secret. She isn't running on Bernie's plan anymore. Sorry, David. It's amazing to me that the communications person just openly admitted she was running on somebody else's plan in the first place. That is a terrible, terrible admission. So wait, the plan that she's moonwalking from wasn't even her plan to begin with. Which David Sirota, uh, who now works for the Bernie campaign, yes, a very strong way to show consistency is to check notes uh, (laughs) to tell your big donors in the Hamptons that you're suddenly opposing the bill you co-sponsored. And Sirota just pointed out what I pointed out. The use of the word anymore, anymore here is so priceless. Not to be outdone, Bernie Sanders getting into the fun. Didn't mention her by name, but it's who he's talking about. I don't go to the Hamptons to raise money from billionaires. If I ever visited there, I would tell them the same thing I've said for the last 30 years. We must pass a Medicare for All system to guarantee affordable health care for all people, not just for those who could afford it. Little, uh, little, little, you know, punch without, without jab, jab, without uh, naming names. So... What do you, I mean, what is there to say? The, the sheer fraudulence of somebody with the nickname for the people. Let me tell you something. There is very, very few, maybe ne- maybe none. Uh, I know I'm from Long Island. I know the Hamptons pretty well. And by the way, I just want to openly, openly admit right now that I'm a hypocrite. And I am against this. And I've told my family I'm against this. I love my mother. She's turning 60. For whatever reason, they decided to have her 60th birthday at the Hamptons. I don't know why. I prefer Fire Island. But we're having her 60th birthday coming up in September. A couple days before my birthday, actually. In the Hamptons, I wanted to um, protest. But I can't not be there for my mother's 60th birthday. So I just acknowledge my own hypocrisy here. But I'm not going lovingly. And I don't know why we're doing it in the Hamptons. And it's I, not hypocrisy. It's not her choice. It's my brother's choice. But my brother works at a hedge fund, so it makes sense, actually. So why this is so important, we're talking liabilities for a general election. I mean, how you defeat Donald Trump is to have the boldest, starkest contrast possible. Kamala Harris is all... Kamala Harris, honestly, and some of you might think I'm saying this in a certain way. I don't mean it the wrong way. She's Hillary Clinton. She's just, you know, obviously a different color, a lot younger. Same thing. 
a lot of the stuff that comes out of Kamala Harris's mouth is obviously poll tested. When she says, I'm going to prosecute the case, that is poll tested jargon. They put it out in focus groups to see how that language works because she was a prosecutor for the people. Does she not think it's going to come back to bite her in a very populist, very anti-establishment mood in this country? That you're hobnobbing in the Hamptons? That you're not moonwalking away from your plan? Most politicians moonwalk away from their own stuff. She's moonwalking away from somebody else's plan. And she had the temerity in the Hamptons while speaking with these fine, fine patriots, these wealthy men and women of America. She has the temerity to say, oh, you know, well, you know, people sign on to other people's plans. You know, Bernie signed on to a public option plan, and now he's for Medicare for all. Right, Bernie signed on to a public option plan, not as the be-all, end-all, that's what he wanted, but as a step to Medicare for all. She signed on as me to Medicare for all. Medicare for all is the last stop on the train as far as, if you want to talk about the, the um, wavelengths to health care. There's nothing beyond Medicare for all in terms of, you can't go further left than Medicare for all that I know of. So Kamala Harris signed on to Medicare for all simply because that's the way the wind was blowing politically and she wanted to look progressive. But at the same time, she signed up for Medicare for All. And then in that first CNN town hall, remember when I told you, oh, she's saying, yeah, just get rid of it, private health care. So, yeah, and I got a bridge to sell you that Kamala Harris was going to get rid of the private health insurance industry. Are you kidding me? And then, of course, she moonwalked quicker than Mitt Romney and Michael Jackson combined. So Kamala Harris, Joe Biden, all I got to say, let me get it. Iceberg, iceberg, iceberg. And, you know, the Titanic, you know, they only had like a couple hours, right? We got five months till the first primaries. They see this iceberg. They got a lot more time to save people. There's a lot more time right now, a lot more advance notice. There's also much better technology if a boat hits an iceberg. But, you know, our pilots totally ignoring things. And, and, and frankly, I'm not going to be long on this. It's time for Beto O'Rourke to drop out. It's time for John Delaney not only to drop out, but to please just never speak again. Nobody, nobody cares what you have to say. He's tweeting. He, no. John Delaney, Beto O'Rourke, Michael Bennett, all these people. Because you want to know something? It's time to see who... Who, it's time to see the serious candidates. I don't want to sound like an elitist. Frankly, in 2000, at this point in 2017, Obama was far behind Hillary Clinton. So it's not to say somebody who's not leading right now can't compete. But if you're polling at 1%, 2%, 3%, many, many uh, for, for a significant amount of time, there's no reason for you to be on that debate stage. None. We covered it a little bit last week. Uh, Newark. Newark, New Jersey has a uh, majority is African-American, very poor. Uh, similarly, Detroit, Flint in, in the makeup, um, very, very, uh, not a lot of investment in Newark. Even though New Jersey, one of the, one of the state's highest property taxes, just yesterday driving uh, from uh, where my girlfriend is from originally to Newark, 
10 minutes before Newark was really, 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 really nice suburbs. You drive to Newark, not nice, really crumbling. And this, you see this in Detroit where the drop-off is very, very stark, very quick. So Newark, you'll be amazed to see this, and I was amazed, some of the pipes, some of the, the water pipes in Newark were installed in the 1880s. 1880s, do the math. That would be 140-something years ago. Newark and the water group suing it may be fighting in court, but there's one thing both sides agree on. Residents need to understand the importance of lead-contaminated water and what to do about it. For the third consecutive six-month period, the city of Newark reported elevated levels of lead in its tap water in 12% of its samples. State data shows. No one, in, no one is surprised by the result. Quote, we have identified that there's an issue and we're trying to address it. Tiffany Stewart, legal counsel for the city's water system, said, Newark officials have insisted the water from its reservoirs is safe to drink and that the city's old infrastructure and 15,000 lead service lines, which connect from water mains to each property, are causing the spikes. So this story with the, that some of these pipes are from the 19th century, this, that story, I think, was from a year or two ago. So you would think in some of these communities, because a lot of most of the pipes in America, by the way, are, were built, if you're lucky, 50 to 60 years ago. If you're not lucky, 90 to 100 years ago. And in the case of Newark, you're talking 19th century. So you would think, because in Michigan, uh, the ex-governor, Rick Snyder, proactively, without a problem, replaced the lead service lines in Ann Arbor, shockingly where he is from. Majority white community, a lot of dough. Quietly, lead service lines have been uh, replaced in middle class white neighborhoods in a lot of cities in this country. Wouldn't you think that if a city presumably has the records that there are pipes under the ground from the 1800s, you wanna proactively take those pipes out? Can you imagine the corrosion or what those pipes look at, look like from the 1800s so the chickens have come home to roost and now Newark they are finding extremely high lead levels all over the city and like Flint and other places, the state response, the EPA's response, was to throw filters at the problem. Well, they did new rounds of testing with the filters, even with water filters. High lead, higher than the quote allowable limit of 15 parts per billion were found. It is now the fifth straight day that residents in around 15,000 Newark, New Jersey homes are being given by water for drinking and quote this is a slap in the face to the residents of the city of newark resident donna jackson told abc we are now in panic mode because the fed had to come in to tell us to stop drinking the water by the way they just started raising the alarm there were high levels of lead found in newark schools in 2010 you know who's mayor of newark in 2010 say it with me now cory booker
One way lead particles get into water is through corrosion in pipes. In what is believed to be the case in Newark, the metal and lead service plumbing line starts to tear away and mix in with the water passing through. This is often at, often apparent in older pipes. In some affected Newark neighborhoods, pipes are over 100 years old, the AP reports. In June 2017, citywide tests showed that more than 10% of homes across Newark had twice the amount of lead that is considered according to federal law. I got to be honest with you, I've covered this enough. I don't believe a word coming from state water departments or the EPA. They could say it's 10%, but in, unless there is independent, say it with me, independent, not state testing, not EPA testing, because they cherry pick and they cook and they game the system in Flint, in Milwaukee, and many other places. But unless an independent water tester goes in and tests citywide throughout neighborhood to neighborhood, street to street, not cherry picking where to test, you cannot believe it's only 10%. So I want to play uh, just some of an interview I did with uh, a gentleman. He's a grandfather. I was at his daughter's house, got seven grandkids. It was 100 degrees out yesterday with the humidity. And he has a problem a lot of people have in Newark right now. They're being given two cases of water, which goes by pretty quickly in the summer. And then they can't get more water for several days after that. Here's uh, one of my interviews from yesterday. It's the middle of summer. I mean, what are you supposed to do? It's 100, almost 90 something degrees. What are you supposed to do? A bunch of little kids, they want water. They constantly want water, water, water. I mean, what are you supposed to do? And it's also difficult because you're saying you got to go buy water. You did. I, I got to go buy water. This isn't exactly, you know, the most wealthy area that yeah. people could afford to buy more right. and more water. You're right. We got to keep buying more and more, more water. I work at a minimum wage job. My daughter, she's on a fixed income. I mean, I do we afford, and for a problem that we did not create. And we you, did not create. We just live here. And you, uh, you have seven grandkids. So seven you gotta grandkids. Be, are you concerned at all about how long they've they, been they, drinking they, this? They, they, they're all going to be tested before they go back to school. So they're all going to be tested for the lead because they gave us the filters. The NHA the filters don't work. Oh, uh, but we're drinking the water with the filters. Uh, yeah. Now they gave. They gave they, they seem in many cities to be throwing filters at yeah. the problem, saying you're fine yeah. if you drink a filter, but filters go bad in hot water, and they might stop most lead, but they could cause bacterial issues they, and other issues. They give out filters without filter education. How do you give out filters? Hey, everybody take a filter. Okay, put it on your sink. Nobody else has education on how to use filters. You know what I mean? People never use a filter, never bought a filter, and they just give you, they, they give you 10 filters. You want 10 filters here? But they don't tell you how to use them. They follow the direction on the box. And uh, like in Flint, a lot of these areas, Detroit has a water problem, Milwaukee, a lot of uh, majority black communities poor. Uh, it's very consistently happening in the majority, minority communities, and it's the same playbook. Water, water distribution, they do some testing, they add some chemicals into the water, and they say, oh, the levels are improving. Yet, you know, it's, it's, in a nicer area, you would think that they've changed those pipes lickety-split, and it'll be... Right, no problem. But you know what? I, I, I would like to ask Canada. I would like to ask the, the last man who's running for president. Um, Mr. Cory Booker. Mr. Booker. Ah, you, you knew about this on your watch. You knew about this. This ain't just happened. You knew about this on your watch. Yes, it's formal on, on the mayor now, Baraka, but you knew about this on your watch and you did nothing. Because this and is. And you did nothing. You, and you knew about this on your watch. 
And and what are what are you doing, Mr. Booker, to help us people that need water now? What are you doing besides campaigning for president? This happened on your watch, on your watch too, Mr. Booker. This happened on your watch, and 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 and, and we know. We know it happened on your watch. Because this, uh, they were finding high lead levels in 2010 when he was mayor. Yeah, uh, uh. But now it's suddenly yeah, getting Yeah, now attention. all of a sudden he's getting attention. But it happened on his watch, and he knew. They knew then. That's where, with, with, the, um, um, with the federal lawsuit, you need to find out who knew what and when they knew. So that was uh, my conversation yesterday with Lonnie Warner, uh, grandfather of seven. That was his daughter's place. And... Honestly, I think, and by the way, you know, beginner, beginners, uh, beginners benefit of the doubt. That was my girlfriend. She was actually wiping the sweat off her face, so that's why you saw her thumb in front of the camera. She means well, and uh, I appreciate her holding the camera up. So uh, she did a good job there, minus the thumb. But well, I think what he's saying is so important because... Even even with the minimal attention that the national media is giving this, remember, the media went to Flint for like a week in 2016, and it was at, all the media was covering was Flint. The, Newark's not even getting that. So, like, other than local media, and national media is kind of there. Uh, you've seen national media articles. It's not being treated as like an urgent crisis. I mean, Flint was treated that way for like five minutes. So after this initial coverage with, you know, I'd say it's more heavy on the written end. You see more articles about the Newark water crisis. Where are people? I'm even talking to Bernie. You know, when is Bernie going to Newark? And by the way, I feel this is a journalist. How do you choose where to go? It's not just Newark. There's water problems in Milwaukee. Pittsburgh, East Chicago, Indiana, obviously Flint, Detroit, North Carolina, Oregon, California. There's not enough journalists and politicians in the world. So, <laughs> the thing is, and I say this uh, based on having been to Flint 14 times, Ty was in Flint for, what, 10, 11 times? Yeah. Um, Paul Revere ain't coming. You know, uh, the, the, the citizens, unfortunately, mostly black, but unfortunately, or, or maybe tellingly, this is now coming to the white side of towns, too. A lot of poor white people in Flint, Detroit, other areas, Milwaukee. The water is messed up because our politics is messed up. In Flint, it was a very acute situation, you know. They switched the water source. They didn't add the proper chemicals and tragedy and calamity. This is due to political Corruption and negligence. We got enough money, $738 billion for this Pentagon budget, but they can't proactively replace lead service lines uh, maybe a century after they're built. This is 1880. 1880, some of these pipes were built. You wonder if Newark was a different profile. Maybe the records, maybe they'd have the records and maybe they'd act accordingly to change those pipes.